Hi, all. Thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we welcome Dr. Hirsch Trivedi, who is the president and CEO of Shepherd Pratt. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about Shepherd Pratt. You've been around since you said 1853, but you said that one of the key things that allows you to remain and thrive now is your ability to evolve. I'm really thankful to say I have not been here since 1853. Uh, the organization's doing. You look really amazing well. if you were. I yeah exactly. Uh, no, you know what I will say, and I think what's awesome about Shepherd Pratt is uh, it, this is an organization that was begun in 1853 uh, by Moses Shepherd who was a Baltimore Quaker. And it really got started because uh, he was actually a jail, he was the first jail commissioner for the city of Baltimore. And uh, what he saw was that people that were coming into jail, they weren't all bad people. There are people that have substance use issues, there are people that have other things going on in their lives. And that led to him going through this discovery and basically what he left in terms of his bequest was to create a hospital, to create a place uh, where people could get respectful treatment, which was the current uh, art and science of psychiatric care. And that is what became Shepherd Pratt. So that is Moses Shepherd and Enoch Pratt, who a lot of people know from the uh, Baltimore Free Library and a number of other things that he's uh, left uh, money for. And what I'll say is during this journey since 1853, what we have now at Shepherd is an organization that has uh, about 5,000 employees, 380 plus sites of service, 162 unique programs. But what makes us unique is all of these programs are specifically focused on mental health, substance use, developmental disabilities, and social services. And when you think about that, we treat over 70,000 individuals in any given year, and we provide that across every payer category as well as those that are uninsured. And the programs and services you can think of, yes, are the more traditional things like inpatient hospital stays and outpatient clinic visits, but it is the entire gamut. So things from uh, helping people that are at risk for homelessness, helping people in terms of running the domestic violence shelter out of Washington, you know, right outside the DC suburbs, uh, thinking about early Head Start programs, 13 special education schools, uh, what people need is what we deliver, vocational programs, supported housing, all these types of things. And going back to the original comment, yes, uh, I haven't been around since 1853, but part of our success is actually the fact that in that entire time, I'm only the sixth uh, president and CEO of the organization. Every single one has been a physician. And I think that longevity and leadership, as well as singular focus to mission, is what's allowed us to keep on making the changes that we've needed to, to not only succeed, but be relevant for each time period that's come. Mm. Yeah, so Hirsch, it's interesting. Uh, one of the lines you just mentioned really, really resonates with me is what people need is what we deliver. <laughs> which makes me think that you and the organization has a unique ability to really understand the community's needs. Um, you know, I guess all organizations feel like they do something in that arena, but maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how Shepherd Pratt does that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing and what really attracted me to Shepherd uh, six years ago is I'd spent my entire life, I will say, I, yes, went to medical school. I'm board certified in psychiatry, child psychiatry and was at the major academic medical centers across the nation. And then uh, this opportunity came up. 
what attracted me to Shepard is really from the very beginning, uh, there is this focus that really comes from our Quaker roots. I mentioned uh, Moses Shepard, but it really begins with this one uh, phrase that I, I love, which is to meet a need that will otherwise not be met. So I, there are lots of people that provide very similar services. Uh, where we stand out is we specifically tackle what is hard because that is what many other people shy away from or don't choose to do. But we also fundamentally believe for our community, those are the things that have to get done if we want to see progress happen. And so when we talk about that, uh, going back to some of those Quaker beliefs, it is the Quaker aspect of spices. Um, I'm not gonna go into every single letter right now, but it, you can easily look that up. And but the point here is uh, what we try to do and our definition of our community has changed. So when we started off, we were literally one hospital uh, in Baltimore. Uh, at this point with our scale, we get patients from all 50 states and 24 countries in any given year. So our definition of community has changed to actually meet the needs of very broad audiences. As we do that, what I will say is, um, you know, we actively get feedback from those that get our care and we try to figure out what's next. And so being where we are, it is, yes, uh, how do we deliver the care and services that people need? Uh, the field of mental health has changed dramatically over the years. And I think uh, what I would argue is most people as they're listening to this uh, podcast, if you come and you spend some time, even if you just go to the website and you look at Shepard Pratt, uh, the hope is that we will dispel what are a lot of misconceptions of what psychiatric care is. I would argue we are a specialty hospital organization, no similar or no different than walking into a specialty cancer hospital, pediatric hospital, uh, endocrine hospital, uh, you know, and I think what you get here is really respectful care. Each person that walks in is accepted, uh, gets exactly uh, the right treatment that they need but also in a way that actually helps them do better and stay well. And so that wellness piece is also there. And we've been doing that for a large uh, number of years now. And so I think getting back to what makes us different is really the community needs have changed. When you look at the book of business or what is the services that we provide, that has changed. Uh, and I will just say, for, you know, as every evolution happens, not just in our community, but in terms of care mechanisms, the broader marketplace, uh, we are not beholden to say, well, we have to remain this way. We evolve, we change. And so the last point I'd make is, you know, if you think about when managed care came in in the early 90s, many psychiatric hospitals across the nation closed. If anything, we went a completely different path and we expanded substantially. We had rapid growth and we changed a lot of internal processes as well as operations to make sure that we not only survive, but thrive for what was the reality. I think it's remarkable that you said that your founder working in the jail or prison recognized that these aren't bad people and that they just had these issues that weren't being addressed. Because that is something that today in 2022, people really still seem to struggle with. You know, that's one of the biggest problems that people who are mentally ill end up in jails and that cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats. So You've said that you, from the very beginning, you guys have had a different view on the way that mental health is handled. And then you've evolved over the time that you've been here. 
And you've also told us in the pre-interview that behavioral health is unlike any other medical specialty. You said that other medical specialties, you could be a doctor in one specialty, open a clinic and run it effectively and profitably, but mental health is a different beast. Why is mental health so different than all of these other areas of medicine? Yeah. And so, you know, as you asked that question, uh, what I love just kind of uh, being in hospital leadership for many years now is every service line feels this way, right? And so as I, as I give the answer, everyone's going to think, well, no, 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 my, but my service line in urology or, uh, you know, cardiology is really special and different, just like what you're saying. So the, the, the big thing that I will just say is I think in general, as a society, uh, we're still not at the point uh, where we consider mental health issues the same as any other medical condition. And I think this is an important piece because right now, and particularly because of the pandemic, what we all have come to realize is there are mental health issues in every single community across the nation. There are also mental health issues in every single family, friend group. You walk into any room of about 20 people, I can promise you there's already at least four or five people there that have actual mental health struggles going on. And the silver lining of the pandemic is at least we're talking about it. Uh, The next part of that I will say is really in terms of running the services, this is, a, this is what's different. Um, as a physician, um, and I, I've had conversations with other, other physician CEOs, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I, I'm a urologist. And if I uh, had patients sitting in my ED and I needed to start a urology clinic, I would just do it. And if I did it, I'd know that, you know, yes, the patients would be coming in and the numbers would work out and we would just grow to what our community needed. And this is, I think, the thing that is incredibly hard for most health systems is they see the community need, they know the services need to get built. However, when they build them, uh, they lose tremendous numbers of dollars. And so then you get into the issue of, well, we're at a time where in general margins are decreasing. We're trying to figure out how to pay for things like nursing workforce, other uh, increasing costs. And as much as they'd love to grow behavioral health, they say, well, I just can't afford to do it. And so I think the thing that makes behavioral health differently is we're still at a point where on par, as you look across the nation, e uh, uh, e reimbursement for mental health services is still lower than other fields of medicine. But also I will say uh, in terms of running an effective behavioral health organization, structurally it just has to get done differently. So you can't take administrator for, let's say, uh, a Hemont clinic and say, okay, now you go and run the behavioral health clinic, because I promise you, as much as they will do lots of things to get to greater efficiency, financially, you're still not going to make ends meet. And, and I, why I say that is because uh, for something like a shepherd, uh, we run with an overhead of about 14%. And at that point, everyone's jaw should drop because to run a health system with the 14% overhead uh, it's hard. So we are incredibly flat, but it also means I spend a lot of time on talent management, bringing in the right people. We can't afford not to hit on all cylinders all the time. The other part of that I'll just say is in terms of those service, in terms of behavioral health as a service line, uh, it really starts, uh, from the construction of how that team is built to operational efficiency as well as really chasing down every single dollar, both from the contracting side, revenue cycle piece, 
and then really kind of collecting co-pays and all the other pieces. And if you can't do all of those right, uh, or rather, if you do all of those right, you may get to break even or a little bit in the positive. Uh, but other, you know, if you don't, uh, nine times out of ten, you're going to lose substantial money, and that 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 is very different than any other service line. What's what's really uh, impressive, Hirsch, in everything that you're talking about, there's so many different things, but like one one line that I'd like to explore a little bit more with you is that what is you've built this culture uh, within the organization so deeply, and yet you're still able to be agile and evolve. And sometimes those things feel like they should be at odds with each other. You know, the, the more uh, clearly established a culture is, uh, can it become then resistant to change. Uh, and I think one of the secrets that you said that leads to that is the great team that you've been able to build uh, that has a lot of experience working across multiple uh, uh, academic sectors and, and other large, large scale health systems and find a way for them to work more effectively together with each other. Uh, so could you comment a little bit on how that culture of uh, really gets created, how the values get deeply inculcated, uh, and yet at the same time, how you maintain agility and how you've built the trust for the team? Yeah, so I, I'm gonna start off by I think that there's a part of this as any leader, um, humility has to be a large part of it. And, and what I mean by that is I've been at Shepherd Pratt for six years now. And while I believe that we've fundamentally changed the face of what we do, um, the culture long precedes me, the mission, the vision, the values of the organization uh, were here. That's what attracted me here, like it's attracted many others, both for care, but also to be on the care team. And so I think first is really in terms of how these things happen, uh, you have to be at a organization that has a mission, a need to want to do something greater than itself. I think that is particularly in today's talent market, particularly with younger generations that are entering the workforce, that connection to mission is huge. Once you get beyond that, uh, that's where the execution piece comes in. And I, what I will just say is I think as a CEO, uh, you know, I, I'm going to share some lines that I say pretty often. And I, I know that that's the case because my team then throws it back on me in a loving but embracing. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what you said we should be doing. And, and so, you know, th there are a few things that I think are truly important. Uh, in too many organizations today, uh, there is a ton of dysfunction. And as we see greater, uh, I will say, financial stress, as well as talent uh, recruitment stress, uh, there is more silos being built. Uh, there's this parochialism, uh, protecting one's turf, trying to manage or trying to keep the dollars and space that you have. And I think that's where uh, you need an effective CEO, you need effective leadership. Uh, so, you know, the things that I work on, I will say is number one for me is when, I, when anyone comes onto the team, uh, I am hiring to find the best person. I'm not hiring to find the best uh, position player. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, we know that we're in a place now where people are not going to remain in the same job for 30 years or even the same organization for 30 years. And so for that reason, uh, what I do is I have throughout my career, I invest in people and that investment gets me both loyalty, but also people that can switch positions, can do things, can grow. And as their career changes, I make sure that they remain in the right seat for that portion of what they are interested in doing. 
The next part after investing in the person, I will say, is I spend a lot of time uh, with not just my leadership team, but really expressing to every layer of the organization, you are only as good as your effector arm. And so I do view every single one of the people that reports to me as an extension of me and my views and values, uh, but also how are they going to run an organization that functions as one? And so a lot of time is really spent on saying, uh, I'd rather have less people, but people that are on the bus uh, than to keep more people for the sake of having warm bodies. And so we actively go through, how do we make sure not only do we have the right people, how are those right people in the right positions, as well as when we have things that are uh, poisonous to cer certain areas or departments, how do we actually address those issues? And that gets to kind of the third point, which is we have a leadership team. And I, and I, and I will say jokingly, uh, you know, I have a team that doesn't have a problem disagreeing with me. They don't have a problem telling me when I am flat out wrong. But I think that's also what we need within more of our leadership teams across the country. And so I have uh, incredibly type A personalities, people that are incredibly well accomplished, but who also, I know that every leader, including myself, I've got blind spots. If I don't build a team around me that actually points out what my blind spots are, uh, I will not come to the best decisions possible. So that active disagreement is important. Yes, obviously, when, before we leave the room, there is a clear decision and we all walk out with one voice. But I think there is too much lacking today in terms of do you have that ability to get real feedback from your team? And then the last part of what I'll say is truly that operational effectiveness accountability. There are too many places right now, and I think particularly in a job market where anyone can pretty easily get a job like tomorrow with a signing bonus and 16 other things. Um, people don't want to stick around in environments that are dysfunctional. And I think that's why you're so seeing so much job hopping. It's not just better opportunities, more money, more flexibility. It's the fact that where they were, there was something actually dysfunctionally wrong that made it not a fun place to go and work each day. And so I think that that's the other piece where I really say for my team, the biggest value that I can bring as a CEO is I spend a lot of time minimizing the drama. So it is really, how do I make sure there's one uh, sandbox that everyone plays in, which is Shepherd Pratt, not your unique program, not your unique location, not your unique uh, service. And the second part of that is uh, beyond everyone realizing that they're on the same team, I spend a lot of time between individual leaders, between departments, between groups of people, and really driving at strategically where, where, what is the goal that we're trying to reach? More importantly, how do you all collectively and collaboratively get to that goal? And I think that's one of the things that uh, we can all fool ourselves into thinking that you know we're so large an organization, I'm too busy, I, I, I can't spend that time. And it's often because we just don't like having those difficult conversations. But I will say right now for where we are as an industry, as well as the financial performance we need to just survive, uh, these are crucial conversations that have to happen every day in rooms all across the country. Yeah, such a tremendous uh, breadth of uh, of expertise and experience that you just shared with us here, Hirsch. Uh, I guess what I'm thinking, I, I like your, your thought process about the blind spots. And what I wonder is, how do you actually go about getting that insight into those areas? 
you know, in, in an earlier portion of our discussion, I think you were talking a little bit about the trust that you build with, with your team members. And I'm wondering if, you know, if that's part of the solution. Uh, but so many CEOs, I think, can wind up getting isolated and thinking that they know the answers, uh, but that ultimately, you know, they, they wind up getting shielded, you know, from the answers. So are there any other insights that you can share with how you've gone about getting access to those blind spots? So uh, one of the big things I will just say is um, for me, uh, I, I've been very fortunate. I've worked at incredible places across five or six different states at this point. The first thing is walking into any new role, uh, you really have to put on the jacket of the organization you're with, get to understand the culture, the vision, what's going on there. The thing that people hate the most is, well, you know, when I was at blah, 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 this is what we used to do those conversations really have to stop because you're, it really has to be about what can you do here. Next part of that that I will just say in terms of the blind spot issue is all of these things are possible fundamentally because you have to have trust on your team. So, uh, you know, even at a time of incredible workforce shortages, we as an organization recruit about 50 psychiatrists a year, which is incredibly hard for anyone to do. I will say on the leadership team, we do national searches. I don't need to use a search firm. We get incredible people. But that's also because what people know working with me is simply, yes, I make an investment in that person. But I also say I, there will never be a point where I will screw you as an employee or you know, prevent you from succeeding in your career. And if that part of your career may be somewhere else, I will fully support you in that as well if that's where you'd like to be. Because it's a small world. Uh, you know, five, six, seven years down the line, people come back and revolve in again. Uh, but I think getting to that part about how can you disagree, trust is an important element that you have to have there. There has to be enough face time with my team for them to feel comfortable voicing those things. And then I will say, as a leader, you have to not only show vulnerability, you have to kind of walk the walk, which is uh, you also have to admit when you're wrong. You also have to make it okay for people to get those opinions out. And yes, there are times where I will, I will make sure that different, different voices are in the conversation because then I will turn to the HR leader or the finance leader or uh, the person from the service line and say, well, what do you think about that? You know, and then do you really fully agree that that's our answer? And I think part of this is that accountability piece where there's a feedback loop that you have to build and when something goes wrong, uh, we as a team have to sit down and talk about, well, what could we have done differently combined with uh, me taking the blame as a CEO, but also other people uh, realizing how could they have helped, even if they're in a different area in terms of making sure we don't drop a ball and that we actually uh, perform the way that we need to. So I think all of that is there. And I will say like anything else, um, parenting is a great example. Uh, every day you wake up, it's another opportunity to make the right call. Uh, so, I mean, yes, I get a ton of feedback. Uh, I will tell you at the end of the day, I'm still the CEO. I'm still going to make the important call, but it's with a ton of intelligible, honest feedback that hopefully has guided me to get to an informed decision as opposed to just making the decision. And I think that brings value. It also allows people to feel that their opinion matters and that what they're doing makes a difference. So I, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, brilliant. That's uh, such a multifaceted, wonderful answer. Thank you. I have Thank to you say, for... go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, I have a million comments based on that, starting with a poor stole my final question. I was going to ask you about the blind spots. I was like, oh, darn. (laughs) But I'm glad we got the answer. And then second of all, you recruit 50 psychiatrists per year. That's remarkable. A poor of when you and I interviewed, oh God, I can't remember if it was Phil or somebody else, but there's one state that has one licensed psychiatrist. You guys recruit 50 a year. That's amazing. So that blew my mind. And then I just love your, your openness to hearing things about yourself. And it reminded me of all things completely unhealthcare related. When the undertaker retired and was inducted into the hall of fame, one of the things he said that stuck with me to, I don't remember the exact quote, but he basically said, the people you step on to get to the top are the same, but you're going to kiss on the way back down. And I thought, holy cow, that's, it's so true, but that's exactly what you're saying. You know, you're investing in these people. You're not going to screw them. You're doing something right. Again, 50 psychiatrists a year. That's remarkable. (laughs) Where did that passion to help these people, to be a good leader, where did that come from? For me, I will say, I, as, as I was growing up, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm a physician. So, you know, I went to medical school, you know, watching shows like Marcus Welby, visiting my family practitioner who, you know, saw multiple generations of patients. I went to medicine thinking, honestly, that I would be a family practitioner. Uh, what changed my career and what got me down a different path is I went to a uh, incredible uh, program uh, which is a seven-year med program in Harlem, New York, uh, called Sophie Davis, where one of the uh, amazing uh, conversations or classes that we had uh, was on community health long before we had uh, social determinants of health. Uh, and basically, the idea was, as a doctor, you could either take care of one person at a time, or you could get in at a higher level and change the health of your entire community. And so as I do all of this and kind of why those blind spots are important, why the, why the feedback is important is because it's not about me. The spotlight is not on me. I may be the CEO, but the reality is why we show up for work, why each person comes uh, in each day is really about what they care about is the people and A, bringing in money to take care of their family and their loved ones, but B, people want to be part of something that means more and it is fundamentally about how do you change uh, what goes on in your broader community? How do you move the needle forward? How can you at the end of the day or at the end of your life feel like you've made a difference that has actually mattered? And that doesn't happen as one person. It really happens by changing or creating a movement that puts things forward. Right now for me, and I think the most important movement is behavioral health in terms of fixing as a nation. And I would say thank you to both of you because this has been a incredibly important discussion and uh, I truly enjoyed listening to these podcasts. So great to be on with you as well. well. Thank you so much for being here. We learned so much. I just, I'm inspired. I love, love, love your leadership philosophy and love what you're doing for your community. Thank you. So what much. an honor. Thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. Thank you. Have a great day. And thank you Take all care. for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.